Hey, welcome to Access. John here. I felt convicted to issue out a message to all who are listening to these podcasts from home uh, that if you're not a part of Rungi First Baptist Church, that I am not your pastor and that these messages are designed to be a supplement to your daily walk with God, not a substitution for the church. I strongly encourage you to stay in fellowship with other believers through the local church. And if you're a part of Rungi FBC, then we can't wait to see you when you return. If you're ready to begin today's study, then turn to John chapter 14, verses 18 through 31, because this message is entitled, Wait for it. Do you hate waiting? Pretty stupid question, right? Nobody enjoys waiting for things, especially not me. Did you know in the 1980s, Heinz ran um, an advertisement for their ketchup where a consumer held his bottle of ketchup upside down and waited for the ketchup to fall on his plate. And the ad slogan read, Good things come to those who wait. Well, in truth, Heinz didn't invent this slogan. They just capitalized off of it. This principle goes back further than the 1980s. For example, in the 18th century, a poet by the name of Violet Fane penned these words, Ah, all things come to those who wait. I say these words to make me glad. But something answers soft and sad. They come, but often too late. Now, how true those words are. You know, the, uh, the origins of this principle go back even further than the 18th century, though. These words um, were penned by prophet, the prophet Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations. He says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. That's Lamentations 3.25. So yeah, it's a lot older than the 1980s. Notice the subtle shift from the beginning principle, uh, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the Heinz commercial, good things come for those who wait. Um not only does the, the focus shift from God to man, but also the concept of what is good has shifted as well, to the point where ketchup is put on the same level as a blessing from the Lord, as the Lord himself. Now, I'm not going to worship ketchup, but you know, our culture takes it even further than that. There was a uh, famous heretical teaching that was printed in book form a few years ago, and, and it's called The Secret. I don't know if you've ever read that or, or seen, they made a little documentary about it. It attempted to help people learn to be patient and wait for things, and, uh, but it did it in a diabolical way. In the secret, the author presented an idea that sadly many pastors even signed off on, many famous pastors signed off on. What it taught was is, is that if you really want something, you focus all of your attention upon it, and you pray for it, and you might be shocked here, the universe would give it to you. So, for example, if you really wanted a Ferrari in your driveway and you focused upon that desire with all of your heart, you thought about it, you constantly wished for it, you prayed for it, you even obsessed over it, eventually, that Ferrari would show up. Either it would miraculously show up in your driveway like it was delivered from heaven, or you would eventually have the funds yourself to purchase it. Um, but before you say things like, well, surely that's not always the case... Well, they had an explanation for that as well, and stop calling me Shirley. If you really focused upon having a Ferrari in your driveway with all of your heart, and you didn't receive it, it was most likely because someone else, someone close to you probably, didn't want you to have that Ferrari at an equal, if not greater amount. Your desire for that Ferrari was being counteracted by another person's hatred of you. Thus, the universe wouldn't give it to you. So essentially the lesson was, be nice to people, do good works, and the universe will give you what you want. Now there are things 
there's just so many things right here that is so wrong with this teaching. I don't even really know where to start. Let's just say this. Satan is a master of twisting biblical principles and undermining God. The Bible doesn't support the idea that you should worship and long for things that aren't God. Last week, we briefly talked about Psalms 37, 4, which says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The first part of this passage is more important than the second. Yet we typically leave it out and simply say, well, God will give you the desires of your heart, whatever those desires might be. Now, this is a subtle twisting of the truth. And when we commit to studying God's word and applying, uh, apply his teachings to our lives, God begins to correctly align our focus, to shift it back where it should be. Our lives aren't ours, and they're not even about us. Our time isn't our time. Our story isn't our story. It's God's story. And, and we should be incredibly thankful that we are given the privilege to take a small part, just a small part, in his story. Because it's all about him. Now that's the message of grace. That we've been given an opportunity to have a part with him. But if you leave with anything today, I hope it's this. God, our heavenly father, the one who has every right to not only ignore our desires, but to destroy us for sinning against him. He cares for us. He gives us mercy. He gives us grace. He gives us love. And when we delight ourselves in him, he gives us the desires of our heart. So typically when we hear a message like this one, we do one of two things. We either dismiss it as being trivial. Yeah, God cares for me, no big deal. Or we reject God's love as simply untrue. For how could he love and care for me after what I've done? What we need to learn to do is to lean into this truth and even dedicate time to just soak in it. The creator God cares for you. Think about that. And sometimes we find this hard to believe when God doesn't give us what we ask for when we ask for it. Did you know that my wife and I, we have the hardest time getting our boys to eat dinner every night? We have tried everything we know to try, but they just don't want to eat real food. No, they want to eat fruit snacks and, and string cheese and goldfish crackers. Well, what kind of parents would we be if we let them live off snacks and never eat dinner? You see, in their mind, they want something and we don't give it to them. And they accuse us, at least in their mind and in their heart, of not loving them. We know this is a lie from Satan. But see, the reason they have this experience is because the opposite is true. We care about them. We care about their health and nutrition. We love them. We love them too much to let them live off of fruit snacks, string cheese, and goldfish crackers. Look at this through the lens of a heavenly father who cares about us but doesn't always give us the things that we want when we want it. Sometimes we want things that aren't good for us, and God doesn't give them to us for our good. Sometimes God is reserving for us something better. Sometimes the thing we think, uh, things we think are good, they're not. Now, regardless of what we might think, God cares for us. He knows what is best. And he gives us what we need when we need it. This truth is made abundantly clear in today's passage of Scripture. Jesus has just told his disciples, 
he will soon be leaving. And this elicits panic in his disciples, and they start asking a lot of questions. Yet in Jesus' response, one thing is consistently made clear. God cares for them. Let's read John chapter 14, verses 18 through 31. I'll show you what I mean. It says, uh, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will love him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. The words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let's go from here. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we just we ask that, Father, as we examined your word, that your word would examine us. That you would see things in us that are not of you. You would bring them to our vision. That you would bring it to our minds so that we might, Father, surrender something over to you today. That we might follow you, love you, worship you, and, Father, just might be fulfilled in you. Help us to understand this truth that you care for us. Father, help us to soak in that today. We love you, God, and all these things we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage, Jesus tells his disciples that he's not leaving them as orphans. Now, i got to say, all of us have felt the sting of death. Uh, Scripture tells us that death is a certainty. However, this knowledge doesn't help us to deal with the powerful emotion of loneliness when it happens. And I can't even imagine what it's like to lose my parents. And I know many of you have. And I can tell you that I have never felt more alone than when those I loved and cared about were taken out of this world. And, and that, that's got to be magnified, multiplied when you lose your parents. And for that, I just want to offer some encouragement to you. In Jesus' disciples, they felt like they were being abandoned. They were orphans. And Jesus, because he cares for them, he offers them hope. He tells them that, that they will not be alone and they will must wait for him to return. This return, we believe, is threefold. Through the resurrection, through the Holy Spirit, 
and through the second coming. He says, after a little while, the world will never see me again, but you will see me, which is very true. Did you know that Jesus only appeared to his believers after his resurrection? Just to believers. Jesus revealed himself to the eleven, his close friends, and to 500 other believers before ascending into heaven. Not to the Jews or to anyone else. Not to the Pharisees. If I, if I had my way, I'd be like, hey guys, remember you tried to kill me up on that cross? Well, here I am. Yep, you can't touch me. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't do that. He tells his disciples, I will only disclose myself to you. You will see me. And, and he tells them, if, he tells them, you will see me again, and, and, and then proceeds to remind them what is most important, that they recognize that those who love him will keep his commandments. See, it's not about seeing me, guys. It's not about me being with you. It's about you understanding the purpose by which I came, for which I came, that you keep the commandments. And if you love me, keeping the commandments will be a result of your life. This is an important seal upon every believer. He says that those who keep my commandments will have my love and my Father's love, and I will disclose myself to them. In other words, you will see glimpses of me when you obey my commandments. It will be me doing this work in you. This is more than simply being reminded of Jesus. It falls into the category of you will see God himself working in you and through you. This is a profound truth, but look at what his disciple Judas, not Iscariot, says. Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Now, if you think about it, that's a good question for a bunch of men who believe God had come to restore Israel. Yet Jesus seems to ignore Judas and reiterates his point. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. They will have my father's love and we will live in them. And this is more than some arbitrary, well, we know you miss your mother, but she lives in your heart kind of statement. This is the power of God living in those he loves and who love him. And the power of God resides in his word. In this passage, it seems like he ignores Judas, but he really doesn't. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my words, and I will disclose myself to you. But if you do not keep my words, I will not disclose myself to you. It is God's word that, that separates two categories of people, those who see Jesus and those who don't. Listen to what God's word says about itself. The power of God resides in his word. This is what it says in Psalm 119.11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The power of God's word is to keep you in a path of righteousness. Psalm 119.105. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light into my path. He shows us where to go through his word. Matthew 27.4. Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock upon the rock, that it is the foundation for our lives. God's word is a foundation. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God's words are eternal. Matthew 4, 4, as Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It sustains us. God's word gives us nourishment. Psalms 33, 4, for the word of the Lord is right and true, and he is faithful in all he does. God's word shows us which way is up. 
It distinguishes what is truth and what is a lie. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You see, God's word is not just another book. It's everything. It's the only thing that matters. We know God's word is important, but think about this. When Jesus said these words that we've read today, these life-giving words, the words that Jesus spoke (coughs) that we're reading today, (coughs) they hadn't even been written down yet. So think about that for just a second. Jesus says to his disciples, my words mean everything and in a roundabout way, and it's up to you, John. To write them down so that people can hear them. Do you think that John had a notepad and paper and said, You got it, Jesus. Let me just read back what I've written down so far. They didn't have stenographers handy. Jesus was always on the move, which can help explain why Jesus always spoke in parables. Easy, easy little quips to understand and remember. See, the words he spoke to his listeners, <coughs> they needed to be heard around the world, yet, yet his disciples didn't write them down while he was here on earth. Have you ever wondered how John managed to write down all the words of Jesus and all the things that he did verbatim? Think about it. Jesus' words are important, right? They're life. They're the foundation. Well, John didn't write them down until 50 years after Jesus was on earth. Doesn't that concern you a little? I mean, I'm not 50 years old yet, but for those of you who are, can you testify that memory fades after about 50 years? I mean, can you tell me a verbatim conversation that you had 50 years ago? I can't even tell you what I had for lunch yesterday. Memory fades, right? How how was John able to write down the words of Christ with 100% accuracy? Should we believe it's 100% accurate? I mean, can we say that? Wouldn't it make more sense that John kind of embellished a little bit to make his writing a little more colorful? That Jesus didn't actually say these words? He's just remembering it differently? I mean, it's 50 years. Why should we believe otherwise? Well, we should believe otherwise because of what the Word of God confirms in itself. Not only how each of the Gospels confirm one another, written by different men from different different areas, um, but by what Jesus' next words are to his disciples. Jesus says, I've said these words to you while I was with you, but the Holy Spirit will remind you of them when he's living in you. More than that, he will teach you things I said to you, and he will remind you of what I said. Several times uh, in John's gospel, John points out that there are things that Jesus said to his disciples. They had no idea of what he meant until later on. For example, he says, uh, Jesus told his listeners, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And the people thought he was talking about the temple in Jerusalem, but the disciples discovered later on that he was talking about his body. John 2, 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They didn't understand it then. They got it later on. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and John says in John 12, 16, at first disciples did not understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things had been written about him and that these things had been done by him. Jesus told his disciples when he washed their feet, what I do now you do not understand, but you will understand hereafter. It is because 
not because they had this moment of clarity. It's because the Holy Spirit seal was upon them that they were able to recall what Jesus did and said. So no, it shouldn't bother us that Jesus was an old man recalling verbatim conversations because it didn't have anything to do with John or his age, but everything to do with the power of the Holy Spirit, which means the words we're reading today are not normal. They are supernatural. As scripture says, it is alive and active. Surely you've had situations like I have where you were faced with a difficult decision and God's word was brought to your mind, right? I know right now you're saying yes and stop calling me Shirley. We have all had times when God has taught us things through his word that we didn't understand at first. And it brings this moment of clarity. We've all had things, bright, changing, life-changing words brought to our minds when we needed them most. And do not miss this. That is the Holy Spirit working in you. Memory fades. Emotions, they blind us. But the Holy Spirit lights up our path and shows us where to go. Pay attention to what the Holy Spirit says to you. Because as Jesus says, these words aren't mine. They are the Father's who sent me. Notice Jesus, he he distinguishes the difference between worldly peace and the peace he offers. He says, I'm not just going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you peace. But there's a difference. The big difference is that although we live in times of peace, that could change quickly. We're constantly being reminded of this truth with nuclear threats and terrorist attacks and upset dictators. World peace is a fleeting idea because people will always want more than what they have. Yet the peace that Jesus offers is different because it is peace that will never disappear. The peace that Jesus offers isn't just a harmonious feeling in the midst of strife and heartache. It's not just contentment with what we have. It's the peace that we have with God himself. We need peace because without Christ, we are at war with God. Scripture tells us we have broken his law. Thus, we are lawbreakers. We are born into sin. Thus, we are born into being enemies with God. And Jesus offers us peace through his sacrifice on the cross. This is a peace that will never disappear or be taken from us. Christ may discipline us, he may chasten us, but at no point after our redemption is he ever at war with us again. When we are reconciled to the Father through Christ, the war is over, and those who are in Christ have eternal peace that can never be disrupted. If we are at peace with God, what else should matter? Jesus comforts his disciples again by saying, Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. His disciples knew that his words are true, so because he says, I will come back to you, we can know with 100% certainty that Jesus is coming back for his disciples, for all of his disciples. He reminds his disciples in verse 29 that he tells us these things in advance so that we can believe in him. Jesus then senses his divine appointment is near, and then it's time to leave. Which I always wonder. It's kind of interesting here. He says, let's get up. Let's get out of here. Was it because Judas Iscariot got the temple guard and brought them back to the upper room? Oh, sorry, guys. You must have just missed him. (laughs) It seems a little strange that Judas goes directly out to the garden. I think he was probably looking for Jesus everywhere. I don't know. That's just a thought. But it's kind of cool here. Jesus says, let's get up. Let's go. (laughs) Be neat if that's why. But, you know, with all of the evil 
in the world. The most frustrating thing is for us to sit and wait for Jesus to come back. I want Jesus back today, right now. Yet Jesus tells his disciples to wait and to watch for him. Why doesn't Jesus just come back now? Why does he want me to wait? Well, I can't answer that for you, but I can tell you what I believe God has shown me this week. I believe God has shown me that I should treasure the time that I spend waiting because it has great value. Did you hear what I just said? We hate waiting. But what if that time we spend waiting has great value? For example, Moses spent his whole life waiting. He waited for something to happen while he lived in Egypt and he murdered somebody after 40 years of waiting. Then he spent another 40 years working for his father-in-law, waiting for something to happen before he heard from the Lord in the burning bush. God told Moses to deliver his people to the promised land. This was the purpose that he had waited his whole life for. And then after God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for another 40 years because they were too scared to take possession of the land. Moses waited his whole life to enter into the promised land. And do you want to know something that's really heartbreaking? Although he waited his whole life, he never got to go in. The story wasn't really about Moses. It's about God. And yet when we focus on the promised land and not the time waiting, we miss something extremely valuable. What's valuable? The time we spend waiting. Yes, it's inconvenient. Yes, we would change the waiting if we could. But the Bible says no one has ever nor will ever be as close to God as Moses. Moses spent his whole life waiting. But during that wait, he enjoyed intimacy with God. God showed him things that he didn't know, reminded him of things that he forgot. And what was truly valuable with Moses is that it wasn't really about the promised land for him. It was about the relationship that he had with God. I don't know what you're waiting for. And you know, we all have metaphorical promised lands that we'd like to get to. However, we don't need to miss what we should treasure above all else. Intimacy with our God. God will use this time of waiting to show us about himself and that, that he will show us things that we never even dreamed were possible about him and about us. Remind us of things, maybe that we need to go back and face and that he's going to help us to get through. He has not left us as orphans. He has given us the Holy Spirit to guide us through our lives. He, is, he teaches us things. He reminds us of his word. He shows he cares for us. He is greater than anything else we could ever hope for. And if you don't have this kind of intimacy with God, you can have it today. Surrender your life into the hands of Jesus Christ and experience the peace that surpasses all understanding. Find peace with God and through that peace, find intimacy with him. 
It's this kind of intimacy that fulfills us. It renews us. It strengthens us. It encourages us to press on. And the beauty is that although we hate waiting, we all have to wait to experience true intimacy with God. It's this truth that makes me can't wait to wait. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.